Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Zhoja. I'm with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University, and I'm joined by Giselle Donnelly from the American Enterprise Institute and, and Dalibor Rohat, also with AI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that have emerged along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, today, we're joined by Paul Massaro, um, Senior Policy Advisor to the Commission on Security and Cooperation in Europe. Um, and um, for an introduction of what he's up to, I'll just turn to Dalibor. Well, thank you, Julia. Um, I'm thrilled to welcome Paul to to the show. Uh, Paul works for what is commonly known as, as the Helsinki Commission, which is a bicameral, bipartisan body uh, that's part of US Congress that, that focuses on the upholding of, 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 of the principles and, and, and values of, of, of the Helsinki Final Act and essentially on security cooperation in, in Europe. And, and, and on Capitol Hill and beyond, he was he has been among the leading voices pushing an anti-kleptocracy, anti-authoritarianism agenda, uh, working in a singularly effective bipartisan fashion. He helped set up the Congressional Caucus Against Foreign Corruption and Kleptocracy. He also worked behind the scenes to help create the Interparliamentary Alliance Against Kleptocracy uh, and 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 obviously is very very much present on social media as well. Certainly worth a follow if you're if you're on Twitter. I have to read a little disclaimer before we get into a conversation, namely that Paul Massaro serves on the staff of the U.S. Helsinki Commission, and the views expressed here are his own and do not represent an official position of the U.S. government. Uh, with that caveat, I want to turn to you, Paul, and and perhaps ask you a somewhat provocative question about why we should care at all about kleptocracy. A few weeks ago, um, Danny Finkelstein, Lord Finkelstein, had a fairly provocative piece in the Times, uh, in, the, in, in the UK Times, where he was pointing at the disconnect between the amount of Russian money in the UK, you know, accusations of London being London grad and you know, Lord Lebedev and, 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 and what have you, and the fact that the UK simultaneously is, is leading the efforts to, to help Ukrainians far more so than than continental countries that are by any metric cleaner and 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 more averse to to dirty russian money and and so he says that if in fact the oligarchs have been trying to subvert this country on behalf of putin by buying up our institutions and politicians they don't appear to have done a very good job at it so 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 paul why should we care about kleptocracy and and the inflow of dirty russian money into into america well, way to get it started, Dalibor, you know, like, okay, we're going to start by uh, telling me why you exist at all, you know, uh, and, and, here's, and, here's, and here's somebody that argues you shouldn't exist, you know, uh, so no, no, I mean, I, 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 you know, I love talking with you, Dalibor, precisely because you, you, you ask these thought-provoking questions, and, and I just want to say at the outset, it's, you know, it's really a, a pleasure to be here, long admired your work, we've been friends for a very long time, and uh, worked together on a lot of these things, and lots of good things to say about, about your work as well. Um, so, look, uh, I, I don't, I don't view it 
at all the way as what, what was that Lord Finkelstein? Finkelstein, yeah. Okay, so 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 to me, kleptocracy is by far the kind of subversive threat, the number one threat that we're facing today, because global corruption is the modus operandi of modern dictatorship. You know, something I I love saying, I say over and over again is. Uh, modern dictatorship relies on access to the West. The access to the West is what underpins these authoritarian regimes. So kind of the, the, the larger theory to this is that you have the USSR and what leads to the fall of the USSR is you have these elites who essentially look at the West and say, we want what they've got, you know, um, and we can't have what they've got unless we kind of you know, tear down the wall and all the other walls to commerce and trade and finance and so on and so forth. But modern dictatorship is cracked. Sort of the code it's been able to crack is enabling the elites to live abroad and steal a bunch of money and negate the necessity of the rule of law at all by essentially outsourcing the need for the rule of law. So the use of British courts for Russian disputes or U.S. courts for Russian disputes, and then and then eventually also British courts to silence journalists and and, and others that might go against them and, and, and sue everybody into oblivion and, and undermine democracy from within and so on and so forth, so that you do not need to develop these institutions in Russia. You know, so this, this actually is the reason behind, like when, when people ask like, okay, why didn't democracy develop in this region? Well, this is why, because you could just use these institutions abroad. So the elite get to live abroad. The elite get to rob everybody blind. The elite get to, these are the oligarchs. You know, I mean, this, this applies to all dictatorship, but of course, Russia is just a very, you know, uh, extreme example. And they get to live abroad and enjoy all the rights they deny people at home. And they get to enjoy their billionaire fortunes and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, so long as they sort of pick up the call from Putin when he asks, and so long as they remain part of kind of the, the power vertical. But this is how they solve the problem of unhappy elites, because unhappy elites leads to dictatorship falling apart. Autocrats, you know, people think about autocrats, okay, the, you know, dictatorship, you know, the one, the strong man, whatever, but no man rules alone. Every dictator relies on his crony structure around him. And I mean, I think by and large, they're almost all men. So when I say he, I mean, I really mean he. Um, and if these people aren't happy, you're in trouble. So that's one of the reasons, I mean, even the, even the logic behind going after these individuals right now is to think, okay, well, uh, we're going to make that crony structure unhappy and something might happen. And in fact, I think we are seeing that. I mean, we're, we're seeing, you know, mysterious deaths and we're seeing dissension within the ranks and whatever else. Now, that's both because the Ukrainians have, uh, you know, devastated the Russian military, but it's also because of our sanctions and our kicking these guys out of our society. I'd also like to say one thing back to uh, Lord... Finkelstein, and that is that it's is, a hereditary British title, <laughs> right? Well, 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 well <laughs> I mean, it, it is funny, it sounds like out of a storybook, right? But, yeah, yeah. but, 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 you know, is is look, I'm glad the UK, I mean, I'm impressed that the UK has gone as far as it has, but I want to say in the run up to the invasion, we were all extremely concerned that Britain wouldn't be able to. I think we really, that the United States really put the thumb on Britain to do so. I think that there was a lot of communication. And then I think also there was an interesting interplay between Britain's need to demonstrate their independent foreign policy after Brexit, uh, contrasted with where the EU is. And in fact, I mean, I don't, th I don't agree that the EU hasn't, has lagged. The EU has actually done quite well. I mean, the one big lag has been energy sanctions. Um, 
And that has to do, you know, first and foremost with Germany, but not only with Germany, you know, it has to do with a lot of other European countries. And that is, I mean, it's, it's, I would personally like to see an immediate energy embargo, but, but even I would have to admit that that would, you know, because of bad decisions, because strategic corruption worked to create deep dependencies in Europe on Russian gas and Russian resources, that would be a very, very difficult thing to do immediately. That would cause really substantial um, economic impacts. Now, I would say, oh, well, you, you know, <laughs> you, you take the hit because, you, you know, you, you, you set that up. But OK. So we're also kind of seeing the structural downside to uh, kleptocracy in the form of the weakness of the Russian army. So I ask a specific question if you can sort of guess or approximate as money flows from the West to Moscow, like who who gets what slices? And I think the Russians, I mean, they've dug the, their prisoner, they are prisoners of this system as well. And to reallocate the incoming resources, even as they remain, you know, substantial to like rebuild a military, for example, uh, would be really, would, you know, talk about unhappy elites um, that, that the Russians are, again, kind of trapped in this box of their, of their own building to a certain degree. I think that's very true. I mean, I, I you know, I'd, I joked after this, maybe, maybe we should be uh, promoting uh, kleptocracy around the world because, yep. because, because <laughs> for clearly, this reason alone, right? Like, 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 like dictators are so like lack such foresight that like their militaries are totally hollowed out by how much they can steal. One of the yeah. one of the things I've you know dictators I've with yachts are better than dictators with armies. Right. Well, that that's that's what one would argue is that like you know like wow like like you know maybe we should be taking all the money. I mean, we we have to recognize that that means. These these systems are likely much more sustainable, and that means that democracy will never come to these areas. So I don't think that this squares with our long term goals. Like I think that this is almost like a, I might call it a consolation prize. Like you know, like like you know, I mean, if if Russia if Russia had succeeded in its democratic transition, we would not be seeing an invasion of Ukraine at all, and therefore we would not be seeing the hundreds of thousands dead, the millions of refugees. Like I mean, so so I'm glad we got the consolation prize of. The fact that the kleptocracy was so horrendous and so deep that the military itself was deeply hollowed out. Like, I mean, one of the comparisons I always make is like, look, dictators always steal. They always provide cronies with particular opportunities. But because of global corruption, because of opacity and anonymous shell companies and so on and so forth and the chains of uh, jurisdiction hopping uh, that define, you know, a global kleptocracy, you can steal at an unprecedented scale. You know, like previously you could only steal so much because people could like track it, they could see you. And if, if they saw their leader stealing that much in an obvious way, you you have a crisis of legitimacy. But now you can have this kind of like massive, massive theft. So um, so yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a nice consolation prize. I mean, I think that it's going to make somebody like she think twice. Um, you know, like I think that it's like, okay, well, uh-oh, is our military... A mess as well. Like, do, do, how much do we really know? How much do I really know? Because clearly, Putin thought his military could do this. You know, um, so I, I, I do think it's it's a good doubt that these dictators now have placed in their head. But obviously, I mean, 
we've had to recognize this at an extremely high cost. And my preference is always that, you know, the elite capture didn't occur in the first place and we had stopped Putin in 2008 or 2014 or the many times, to- or 2016. Anytime before now. Yeah. Anytime, <laughs> any of the, the many, 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 many times under many, many different administrations of both parties in which we did a reset or, or you know, did a, did a re-engagement or whatever it was where we knew. I mean, we know how this guy acts. He's acted the same way. Putin has always been the same person with the same regime since at least the Munich speech. I mean, probably before, but at least since the 2007 Munich speech. He's been the same guy. He's just seeing what he can get away with. And I'll, and I'll say, I do think he was actually right to take the action he did according to his own logic because we've let him get away with everything else. Yeah. I think the one big mistake he made was he overestimated the power of his military and he underestimated the resistance of the Ukrainians, which by the way, everybody did. Everybody did. Our Pentagon did. We, I mean, we, we spend, what, hundreds of billions on the best military analysts in the world and not a single person I talked to could tell you that this is going to happen. Everybody thought... This is going to go for two days and be done. And there was no way that this resistance could happen, but it did. So, you know, again, I'm, I'm grateful for that consolation prize, but I, but, I, but I hope in the future it never has to come to this again. Now, I also want to ask you about, you, you, I think you um, call it strategic corruption, especially when we look at the West. I also call it transnational corruption when we look at Central and Eastern Europe. And um, over the last few years, I've seen the United States making some incremental moves to start sanctioning um, away from Russia, other oligarchs, other super corrupt. My favorite example is a guy called Plahotniuk. Um, he was um, the richest oligarch in Moldova. He enabled um, in one year stealing a third of the annual GDP of Moldova and then went to Miami and was there for a while. And then he got sanctioned. And now I think he's in, in Turkey. And I think This was one of the first moves, if I remember correctly, of the United States starting to sanction away from Russia um, people that are just purely corrupt and um, are enabling um, or disabling security uh, in the region directly and indirectly. And so... What do you think? Can we expect now in these waves of sanctions against Russia, can we expect um, more of that to happen? Because I personally am obsessed with gray zone warfare. I think the Russians don't need a lot of money to destroy. I think they can adapt um, and and affect countries in the region a lot more um, through cheap methods and particularly through these trans transnational ties to oligarchs. So how do you see it? Help us help us make sense of what we should be expecting and what we should be calling out for. So I think you're absolutely right. Um, look, the, the, the Russian strategy up till now, which has been extremely effective up until the invasion of Ukraine, has been strategic corruption. I mean, that's been their, their key. There's been other stuff. There's been cyber warfare, whatever. But one of their, the most effective foreign policy tool, in my view, and and the one they really pioneered was strategic corruption, which culminated in elite capture. What they were always going for is this notion of elite capture, which you're right, doesn't cost a lot of money. I mean, I, I always I always look at these, you know, they can get former congressmen or whatever, you know, uh, 
uh, I mean, the CCP gets gets a lot of foreign co- former congressmen, but they can get lobbyists around town, lawyers, whatever, in D.C. doing their bidding for maybe like less than half a million a year. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I mean, think about how much money these guys have, right? I mean, I mean, when we when we consider that we've got like Abramovich sitting on tens of billions of dollars, like you can get the best and brightest. Americans who know the system and have worked in it for 20 years and have every single contact, White House, both parties, whatever, working for you for less than half a million a year. I mean, why wouldn't you? You'd hire everybody. Uh, I was just in reading the recent New York Times pieces about Gerhard Schroeder. Yes. Uh, His price was remarkably low. Remarkably low. And he's a former chancellor of Germany. I mean, it's unbelievable. Like, like, Like we over here pride ourselves on human rights, democracy, and the rule of law. You know, the intrinsic dignity of the human. You know, our our systems are built to fight corruption. And then you come over here and you buy us for less than a million a year. Like, I I almost wish we'd at least demand a little bit more money. You know, I mean, it's it's just it's out of control. They don't respect us in the morning either. Right. Well, well, that's (laughs) that's exactly right. You know, I mean, they know it and they just shake their heads. They're like, oh my god. You know, it's, it's it's so funny to think that the the Soviets just pouring over their papers and having this, how can we beat these guys? And then it, immediately after the Soviet Union falls, they figure it out. And it, it doesn't cost them that much at all. You know, I mean, it's just, it's it's really crazy. So elite capture has been so effective. Gerhard Schroeder is, of course, the face of elite capture. Someone to this day who is still with Putin, you know, still a Putin crony, even after all of this, even after the invasion of Ukraine and all that. Now, I think that strategic corruption... The strategic corruption of Russia is in crisis mode now. It was extremely effective, extremely effective, but now it's in crisis mode because the Russian invasion of Ukraine, particularly the resistance of the Ukrainians, just created this unbelievable moral argument that, you know, devastated a lot of these industries. I, in the first week or two of the war, we were going around and essentially saying, the kill offices were saying, we're not going to meet with any lobbying office or any group or anybody that has any Russian or state-owned or Russian-adjacent clients, you know, and, and everybody dropped their clients, not because of that. I mean, I, I'd like to think it was because of that. They dropped them mostly because of sanctions, right? They don't want to fall afoul of sanctions. But um, I mean, this kind of thing became just devastating. I mean, same, same, same look at like the overcompliance of, so I mean, it's a moral argument. It's also the sanctions. Of course, the sanctions have been huge. Um, and now we even have in the U.S. and the U.K. and the EU, this enabler ban. So there's there's not lawyers. Lawyers can still work because they're they're still working that out. But consultants, you know, accountants, uh, and so on and so forth, can no longer take Russian clients. Which is which is really like you look at it and you're like, why didn't we do this before? We knew this was a problem. I mean, it's like, and they used what they did. What they used for this is service export controls, which is like, oh my God, you know, I, I never saw anybody write about this. I never saw anybody like, it's a, it's a brilliant way to do it. It's a really exciting thing that's going on. And my first thing when I saw, think of that, when I saw that was like, okay, let's do it for the CCP right away. You know, like, <laughs> like, let's do it. Let's do it for every other dictatorship. I mean, if we have the power, let's just do it. You know, like, let's just, let's just tell our professionals they can't work for dictators. So, so this might be actually a good, good point to, to switch the gears a little bit and talk about what has been done and what, what, what should be done. But before we do that, I want to uh, just you know defend Danny Finkelstein briefly. I mean, he's a very <laughs> thoughtful 
a very thoughtful writer, always worth reading. He makes the occasional contrarian argument, but 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 still, he's one of the best people in the in the in the in the British press. Uh, I don't know him right at all, now. and I'm sure he's a great guy. <laughs> and uh, so, what I was going to ask you is was 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 really to to give us an overview of how the landscape in terms of anti-kleptocracy legislation and 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 policy has has shifted over the past couple of years uh because clearly we are in a very different situation relative to 2014 or 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 even a few few months ago and what still needs to be done not just with regard to Russia but with regard to corrupt dictators laundering their money through the through the West uh, more 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 broadly and and let's just focus first on the US and then maybe we can broaden it up to to see you know whether there are any sort of transatlantic implications or G20 implications or or, or whatnot. Okay, sure. So when I started this job almost ten years ago now, which is like um, that's in hill years, that's like a relic, you know. But um, when I started this, and I was talking about the national security threat of corruption at the time, you'd get laughed out of the room. People were like, I'm I'm sorry, what? Like corruption? Corruption is a secondary development issue. It's nice to have, and we can fight corruption, but otherwise. You know, like, like, get out of here. We've got terrorism to worry about. We've got, you know, kinetic warfare to worry about. We've got nukes to worry about. And it's not that there's not security threats. They obviously are. But the notion that corruption was a national security threat, you know, didn't even cross anyone's mind. And in fact, a lot of kind of the the elite capture and, you know, not thought of at the time. At the time, it was just, well, this is just retirement. You know, this is just this is just what you do after you've had your had your job. You know, you go work for a lobbying firm. You go work for a... A law firm, whatever, and then these guys take foreign clients. I mean, you know, it, 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 I think it occurred to many before that, including sort of the legendary, you know, Tom Lantos, chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, that Gerhard Schroeder is a prostitute, as he called it. That's his words, you know. But but a lot of people they didn't they didn't add up, you know. Now I think this really started to change over the last few years as we saw a lot of the repercussions of how this. Uh, global corruption was working. So I think I think we saw the the crisis in democracy. Um, I think a lot of people. There was a huge discussion around uh, uh, issues throughout the transatlantic space: democratic backsliding, blah blah blah. You know, I, I don't need to rehash all of that. All all of the last few years of crisis. But in that time, people started to think, "Oh my God!" You know, there's a lot of blood money <laughs> in our systems, and there's a lot of elites. Who are taking money from autocrats and what is this and what is going on, you know? And I think all of that culminated in uh, actually the the 2020 NDAA in which we passed beneficial ownership transparency because that's really what passed it. Okay, so beneficial ownership transparency, the abolition of anonymous shell companies offered by the United States, were behind it almost all the world's money laundering because they were just so easy to make. You know, you run them through all these jurisdictions and you can launder money get it in the pockets you want. You know, you can't trace it back to where it was stolen. And the argument behind the passage of this provision was, which, which had been languishing for like 20 years, it's actually a international standard under the Financial Action Task Force, but we did not adopt it for like 20 years uh, because it was seen as kind of a burden to business. But um, the, the, the argument, the bipartisan argument was, this is a national security threat. This is a national security threat. And that is the first time it really burst through that it's a national security threat and that it was, and then from then on we were in like warp speed, you know, um, we, 
established in Congress, the Caucus Against Foreign Corruption and Kleptocracy. A day later, the president, for the first time, declared corruption a national security threat or a core national security interest of the United States. Um, we established, as you mentioned, uh, Dalibor, the Interparliamentary Alliance Against Kleptocracy with, with the UK and the EU um, among our legislatures. Uh, and then in December, the administration unveiled its U- first ever U.S. strategy on countering corruption, which included, was so ambitious, included pretty much every single one of our asks with the one exception of like uh, authoritarian revolving door stuff. So we, you know, we'd, we wouldn't just like to stop the money laundering. We'd also like to, you know, make it more difficult for people to work for dictatorships, you know, essentially like a presumption of blood money when it comes from a place like Russia or China or wherever else. Um, but in any case, it was extremely impressive. Um, and then Putin invaded Ukraine. And, and up until then, there were a handful of policies that have been implemented, huge ambition. But within like two months now, everything in that plan has been implemented. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's like that, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's extremely impressive. I mean, there's a few things that haven't been, I'm gonna get into, but, but, but it's extremely impressive what's been accomplished. And it, and it, it just goes to show you that none of this was ever impossible. <laughs> none of it was ever a problem. It should have been done. 20 years ago. And that's always what I try to emphasize. Like, I'm so grateful it's been done now, but it should have been done 20 years ago. And we could have prevented all of this if it had been done 20 years ago, but it's all being done now. And that's fantastic. So when it comes to like how to view this stuff, I often try to understand it in three pillars. That is the first pillar is cleaning up our act at home. That's like beneficial ownership, transparency. There's a bill right now, Dalibor, your question called the Enablers Act, the Establishing New Authorities for Business um, laundering and enabling risks to security act, which is a very nice acronym for it, uh, that would create due diligence obligations for certain gatekeeper professions Mm -hmm. like lawyers, accountants, so on and so forth, um, to basically ask their clients the most basic questions about, Hey, this is suspicious money. Did you steal it? You know, (laughs) did you get it legally? (laughs) Nobody has to ask that in the United States. There's no legal obligation to ask that except for banks. Banks are obligated under the customer due diligence rule to ask that question. So the second pillar is actually going after the kleptocrats themselves, which now we are doing in the most aggressive way I've ever seen. I mean, we just, I just saw the supplemental that passed the house yesterday and 119 million more dollars after the 60 million in the previous supplemental have been allocated for going after these guys. So we have the klepto capture task force in the United States specifically to seize these yachts and to seize this money and to, and, to, and to go after the oligarchs. There's the repo task force, the Russian elites, proxies, and oligarchs task force, which is multilateral with our allies um, to go after everybody. So, I mean, that's, that's really wonderful. And then on top of that, we have the Global Magnitsky Act. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, the, the sanction on plot nuke was done over under 7031C public visa bans. So that's another kleptocracy um, authority used to go after these guys. And then finally... We need to build the rule of law abroad. So this is, this is you know, we need to figure out what went wrong over the last uh, 30 years with our efforts at this, which have mostly amounted to essentially like training police and building courthouses and writing new criminal codes that then are turned around and used against political opposition and stuff like that. And really think in terms of like, what is the rule of law, you know, and get political on it. We've been kind of scared to believe in what we believe and I hope that that ends now. You know, I hope that we're a little bit more forthright about the fact that we are for democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. 
And we want to support leaders that support these things. Just to uh, return to uh, um, the Eastern Front uh, for a moment. Okay, so we all look forward to the day that uh, an independent and free Ukraine is really ready to sort of join the West, to, to put it in shorthand terms. But there still must be a lot of anti-kleptocracy work to do. You know, who knows uh, who's hiding in the woodwork um, uh, from Ukraine. Do we have, how would we craft a strategy to help the Ukrainians, you know, after the heroic struggle that they've, that they're now engaged in, sort of complete the task of realizing their their dreams of becoming a, a liberal democracy. Maybe, maybe to add to that, um, in the elements, the operational elements of that um, of that strategy, I think both the United States and the EU have invested. You mentioned that too money, so much money into building police and training and all of that, but it hasn't been efficient in terms of real sticks vis-a-vis kleptocracy in Ukraine or Moldova or any of these countries. And so what does it take for how, how detailed does the strategy have to be to actually enable us working together across the Atlantic or separately in, in coordination to make sure that the money that we're putting into this is followed with sticks so we actually keep control of building rule of law. How to basically do lessons learned from the money that we spent over the last two, three decades. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so great questions. And I think they're very closely related um, because I really, I mean, I think that Ukraine is going to be the great example of how we do this um, given that all eyes are on it. And I mean, half the, you know, once they've, once they are victorious, um, we're going to have to, you know, help rebuild the country. And you're, I mean, you're right. I mean, the entire focus on Ukraine prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine was fighting corruption. And, and it's not like, you know, Ukrainian corruption will go away. In fact, you know, it's, it's possible, I mean, that, that the corruption is even being exacerbated because there are fewer eyes on it. So, I mean, it's not, you know, look, I, 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 I do not like to view, I think that there's kind of like this view that Ukraine is kind of this basket case country that can't like get its stuff together and is struggles with oligarchs and whatever else and just can't seem to break free of whatever the corruption trap. I, I've never liked that view because I think that it, it, first of all, it plays very much in kind of the hands of the Russian, though that's, the, that's what the Russians would like people to view Ukraine as just, just it's impossible. Ukraine will never get, you know, get its, get its stuff together, whatever. Um, the other reason I don't like it is because we have played, a, I, I hate to say it, a huge role in plundering Ukraine while at the same time, out of the other side of our mouth, saying, you need to fight corruption. So when Furtash has, you know, hundreds of millions in London and Kolomoisky has hundreds of millions in Cleveland, <laughs> you know, it's, it's really hard for me to, 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 you know, then go to Ukraine and be like, okay, you guys need to work this stuff out. I mean, I think that the Ukrainians are actually really frustrated with the West because the West seems to lecture them, which, I mean, mm -hmm. again, I it's justified lecturing. Like, I mean, they do have like a very traditional kind of 
procurement fraud, tax fraud, you know, judiciary bribery. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's all the things that we would normally associate with corruption, right? It's like, this is, this is the West's view of what corruption is. But from the Ukrainian perspective, the West is looking pretty corrupt. When you've got, when you've got Gerhard Schroeder working for Putin, it's like, oh my God, are you serious? Like when you've got like the best lawyers working for Furtash and Kolomoisky and the Ukrainian oligarchs, they're like, what? What? You know, like, I mean, I, and, and I feel like the best thing we can do to promote the rule of law around the world is like to understand our role in plundering these countries. And that's not to say like, like the, I think the big differentiation that needs to be made is this is not the U.S. government role. Like I, I, the U.S. government has not gone in and like exacerbated corruption. I think all the U.S. government has really tried to, to help these countries and try to protect the United States, which is its primary job. Um, but it is the regulatory framework. It is the general um, global corruption framework that we failed to respond to and failed to acknowledge. So we've actually left our financial defenses wide open. So we've got this great military and we've got all that we got. We're fighting in the cyber domain, but, but in this financial domain, we've done nothing. And, that, and that's, that's, that's led us to this state of affairs. So I really think the biggest thing we can do to fight corruption in Ukraine, to fight the oligarchs, because the biggest problem with Ukraine is the Ukrainian oligarchs. I mean, you really, you, to, to really achieve, uh, you know, rule of law in Ukraine, we need de-oligarchization. I mean, that's, that's, and the only way you achieve that is by providing a set of carrots and sticks for these individuals that, you know, make them not want to plunder Ukraine any longer. I mean, and a big part of this is to hold your money in the country, which you are, you know, making it right. I mean, when, when, when this is, this is, I always kind of make the comparison to the, to the robber barons of our own, uh, legacy in the USA is, you know, we, we, we had these individuals who through all sorts of unscrupulous means were able to make an enormous sum of money, but they had to hold it in the United States. And so they had to reinvest in the United States, you know, and this is, this is what you don't have in Ukraine. The oligarchs can mm. hold all their money abroad and they do. So you need to, you need to, um, fight that. And then, um, you know, I, I just say on the sticks front, um, we, you know, we have sticks in a way we did not in the past and we're willing to use them in a way we did not in the past. You pointed out again, plot nuke, we've, We've sanctioned Dragnia and Romania. I mean, we've 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 actually used these. We're, we're much more willing to block these individuals from our 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 political our shores and financial system than we've been. And the other thing about these tools is they name and shame in a serious way. They demonstrate that you do not have our buy-in. Um, and I do think that they have like a, a straight on impact just by the fact that we're naming these individuals. So I think the big lesson learned is always like. We need to acknowledge corruption as a political phenomenon, as a transnational phenomenon, and that's something we are doing. So I, I think we're moving in the right direction. You know, we're recognizing it's not just something you can fix by rewriting the criminal codes. In fact, that that's that's not going to fix it. That's 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 not the way to do it. Well, I think it's time to wrap up. Um, before we do so, you just mentioned Dragnet in Romania. I'm from Romania, and I'm personally thankful <laughs> for that. I spent a winter in skiing clothes protesting him. Um, and hey. so, <laughs> and so, um, but 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 on that note as well, you know, that's not apropos naming and shaming 
and hearts and minds in Central and Eastern Europe that are so pro-American in countries like Romania, that's not well known enough. Um, people in uh, in on the Eastern Front are thinking, well, the United States doesn't have the the tools unlike the EU to sanction to um, keep in check rule of law and they want to see more of that now that's increasing and you've um, reassured us here but I'm hoping that we can get the message out there also more visible to people because it it helps um, it helps those who, who are trying to fight it that's a great point and, and we can always do better in proclaiming things and obviously that's what I attempt to do with my Twitter presence as well. But, 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 but I'll, but I'll just, I'll just say, you know, it's like, um, we, you know, we did this big sanctions tranche on Bulgaria. Mm-hmm. You're probably aware. Yeah. Um, and you know, that was very well received in Bulgaria. It was. And, yeah. and, 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 and weirdly like, like middling received in Brussels because they were like, America's handling our kind of corruption problem sort of thing, you know? So it's, so there's always this, this disconnect where it's like, you know, like obviously the ideal is that the EU and the sovereign states that make up the EU are finding ways to fight their own corruption problem, you know, and that, and that they're, they're finding ways to go up. And I mean, they've tried with like the, the European public prosecutor, Koveshi, mm-hmm. I mean, there, there, there have been there. I've seen in like you know in the alliance in the interparliamentary alliance against kleptocracy, we have you know uh, MEP Daniel Freund, who's been very strong on this in Hungary, for example. But, but I mean, just like I guess, where's the beef? Is constantly what we're like, like you know, it's just there's all this, there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot to talk, and then not a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of action, um, and. When uh, I don't know, just like when when the EU seems to like like no no European leader can like miss a day to say Ukraine is not joining the EU. It's like it's like it's yeah. like come on, come on. With the kleptocracy stuff, it's, it's it's hard when once you are really looking at countries that are part of the EU because the European response can be only as strong as its weakest link. And you know, with regard to Hungary and Article Seven procedure, and and now there's a rule of law mechanism implemented that that, that suspends EU funds. I mean, that that sort of runs into the constraint of, of of the fact that you need Hungary's cooperation on some other issues, and so so then like Viktor Orban will use that as as, as leverage uh, to you know get some of the money, and uh, and, and and so so that is sort of like self limiting sort of attributes of, of of the way the EU functions. That actually having somebody like the U.S. play this role of, you know, and I'm going to butcher the original meaning of the term of an offshore balancer, I think is actually very yeah. useful. Well, and and certainly, I mean, one of the things we try to do in this interparliamentary alliance, and, and generally just like together, is you know, like let's let's help one another be better. You know, let's let's you can help you can help get my bad guys. I can help get your bad guys. And and but we all need to make we all need to take a step back and. And 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 not have that pride where we say, "Oh, you're interfering." Yeah, it's our turf. You know, um, not at all. Exactly. Um, I exactly. just want to see everybody fighting it. So, <laughs> uh, uh, me too. Me too. I, I I think. Look, we're all democracies here, and democracies' number one advantage is dissent. We 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 have our our entire system comes down to allowing dissent, which is which has kept us 
not on the straight and narrow, but kept us alive and free for a longer time than any other system has. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful we can, we can all take, you know, sort of understand that and, and criticize one another. Instead of shockingly cheerful episode, I have to say. Well, we did get a little, uh, little EU misery in there at the end. <laughs> in fact, I, I, I propose a sanction on EU complaints for at least two episodes. <laughs> <laughs> on these words, um, Paul Masaro, thank you so much for joining us from me, Yulia Georgia, and my friends. Giselle Donnelly and... Dalibur Rohaj. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have emerged along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod in one word. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.